Morning, everybody. Welcome to South Valley Community Church. My name's Sam. So awesome to have all you guys here. We are in the third week of our series, Purposeful. And we've been looking, those of you guys who have been here since the beginning have seen, we've been going through some really deep, ooh, speaking of really deep, my voice is so... <laughs> That's said nobody ever about my voice. Uh, we have been going through some incredibly deep and significant topics that really matter in the world that we live in today. We've been exploring the absence of purpose and meaning in contemporary society around us and how it has kind of infiltrated the church and what we need to do to address it. And so in week one, Isaac kind of took a deep dive and looked at just a sociological level, what's happening in the world because of this absence of ultimate meaning, of ultimate purpose in our lives. And if you were not here for that week, I cannot recommend the podcast highly enough to you. Let's put it this way. Isaac makes the case that because of the lack of meaning and purpose in society, um, everybody is becoming either zombies or toddlers. And I'm not going to explain that metaphor to you. That's just to get you to go listen to the podcast. So you'd be like, why did the pastor say everybody's a zombie or a toddler? It's awesome and really, truly important. But kind of a, a central point that Isaac was making in that first week is that the response to recognizing the lack of meaning and starting to kind of grasp the ultimate higher meaning that does exist because of God and because of our call as Christians, the proper response is not always for us to just be discouraged by the enormity of the task before us, but that for most of us, what we need to do is take a little step into a sphere of influence that we have control over, something small that we can actually do and do it. In other words, don't do nothing just because you can't do everything, right? And so truly, if you were not here for that week, please listen to the podcast. I think it's really significant for what we're doing and, and where we need to go as a church and as Christians in this culture that we live in. And then last week, we took a look at uh, kind of applying that to within the walls of the church, metaphorically speaking, the walls of the church. We called it the purpose inside. And it was about, to a large extent, um, the decline of regular Christian, like committed Christians' involvement in the body of Christ. And so we looked at things like how volunteering and giving and regular church attendance have all gone down in the last decades. In fact, one of the things that we talked about last week is the fact that uh, at one point, not that long ago, just a couple of decades ago, it was considered regular church attendance if you were at church for something one, two, three times per week. Now it's considered regular church attendance if a Christian goes to church once every five weeks. And that's literally true. That's statistically demonstrated. And so what we talked about is, just imagine for a second, a husband or wife who only remembers every fifth anniversary. Imagine if you forget one, two, three, four. By the way, if you were at Hollister service last week, you got to hear my incredibly embarrassing story of forgetting my wife's birthday. I don't have time to tell it this morning, but stop me sometime and ask me. I'd be happy to, you know, embarrass myself again to you in that, in that way. But just imagine a situation where a husband forgets one, two, three, four anniversaries and then remembers the fifth one and they have a, a dinner together and he goes out and gets a present, but then he forgets the next four again. The obvious question is what does that say about that person's love for his wife? What does that demonstrate to his children about his love for his wife? And in a very similar way, when we neglect the life of the body of Christ, we're missing these massive opportunities. And it's not just opportunities to show our, the truth of kind of our affection and our values to our family or to learn about the Bible, but what we looked at is that the author of Hebrews says it's actually missing an opportunity to fulfill your Christian duty to one another, to stir each other up to good works. 
He says, do not neglect to meet together. You need to stir each other up to provoke each other to good works. And so we have just a simple application like we're trying to do every week in this series, which is to evaluate where you're at with how you spend your time, your talent, and your treasure as it relates to the body of Christ. And to start making these things a priority. Again, step into a smaller circle of influence. Don't just feel depressed about your church attendance and your giving and your volunteering, but do something. And that's why we, every week we have these cards, and we'll talk about it again later, but where you can actually put pen to paper and say, I am going to do something different. I'm going to start trying to come every single week. I'm going to make it weird when I'm not at church instead of weird when I am at church. Just kidding. And I'm going to volunteer in kids' ministry or in the ushering ministry or in something. I'm going to take a step into this. And by the way, the reason that I'm taking so long to review last week is because according to the stats we just talked about, a whole lot of people (laughs) wouldn't be here to hear it last week. So we're going to have to do the church attendance talk every week for three or four weeks so that every member of our church gets to hear it. Um, This week, though, we're taking a look at the purpose outside. What is the Christian's mission outside the walls of the church? That's a really important question for us to ask because if you think about it, if you think about the way human beings are wired, we were made for mission. We absolutely were. And you can tell because if you look at all of the great stories of humanity, and I'm talking all of the great stories, everything from like the land before time for little kids, all the way up to Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and even the ancient stories that people groups all over the world have told, the stories are all about mission. They're about a hero or an ordinary person who has a great goal, something that is either cosmic or at least just massively important that is worth sacrificing for. There are journeys, there are trials to overcome, and there are sacrifices, self-denials to be made to achieve something huge. Everybody is wired for this. It's why we respond to stories like that. Think about it, every massive blockbuster we've had, even the ones that aren't good, are all about mission. They're all about accomplishing something significant, something important. If you ask a little kid even like what they want to do when they grow up, this eventually kind of gets like beaten out of us as we get older and older. But little kids, the jobs they want to do are all oriented around a mission, about accomplishing something important. I mean like the classic 90s example from when I was a kid is everybody wanted to be what? An astronaut. I heard one person whisper it. Everybody wanted to be an astronaut. And then NASA stopped and a million kids my age, dreams died. But seriously, it's, it was a, you want to be an astronaut. You want to go to space, to somewhere where no one's ever been, do this incredibly important and significant accomplishment. But even things that seem like smaller goals, like there are little kids who want to be veterinarians and they, because they see the importance of that mission of they love dogs, they love cats, and they want to be able to make sick dogs and cats feel better. People want to be doctors. They want to be firefighters. They, their jobs are all oriented around accomplishing some great goal. And again, over time, we start to lose that. And the reason we start to lose that has everything to do with what Isaac talked about at length in the first message. And that's the fact that we are a society that has become oriented entirely around personal satisfaction and personal happiness. So what's the goal that we strive for in modern society in the Western world? We want to be happy, we want life to be easy, we want to be comfortable, and we want to be satisfied, right? That's the goal, personal happiness, personal satisfaction. And when that's your goal, it doesn't even seem like it's related. It seems like, well, you could be happy and satisfied and pursue a mission. But if your highest value is personal happiness and personal satisfaction, you have nothing to deny yourself for, to sacrifice for, to die for. No mission that's worth giving something up for. Because every time you give something up, you're chipping away at your progress towards perfect personal happiness. 
So the ideal of just ultimate satisfaction as a person, as an individual, is naturally pitted against the idea of mission. And what happens over time to a society that lives this way is the drive for mission just starts to die, and we stagnate, and we languish. The thing it made me think of is, uh, have you guys ever had a day, which seems like it would be awesome, where you have the opportunity to do absolutely nothing for an entire day, except like watch TV or play video games or whatever it is that you feel like you really want to do all the time? Has anyone ever had the opportunity to have a day like that? It sounds like it's going to be awesome. I remember a, a few years ago, before we had our daughter, my wife was away for a weekend, and I had a Saturday where I was like, I have nothing. I'm not even going to tell my friends that I'm available. I'm going to play video games all day. That's what I'm going to do. And it sounded awesome. I looked forward to it for a long time. And then it came and it was fun for a while. And you guys are nodding because you've had days like this. It's fun at first. But then by 6 p.m., the sun starts going down and you realize, man, I have accomplished nothing. You feel gross. You feel empty. Some of you guys are like, nope, I love it. I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> but you know that feeling, right? That feeling of, man, I thought that what I wanted was to do this thing that would make me happy but a, just one whole day of it even kind of destroys you. And you feel like, man, I gotta go like do the dishes or go for a walk or something to kind of clear my head. I think we as a society are like a person who spent all day playing video games or watching TV. We're so focused on our comfort, on our satisfaction, that we have lost any sort of touch with a greater mission and a greater purpose. And again, you gotta listen to the podcast from week one because Isaac really dives into the erosion of ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose. But here's the thing, this is the good news and what we're going to talk about today. If you are a Christian, you have a mission. You have a purpose towards which you strive that is greater than your own happiness, greater than your own satisfaction, and it's spelled out really, really clearly for you in the Bible. It's a section um, of the New Testament called the Great Commission. And the Great Commission, it's what we're going to look at today, it's a really clear articulation of what the Christian mission is. And it's awesome that it's there, right there in the New Testament. Jesus, from his own mouth, says, this is what you do. But there's a problem here. The problem is, statistically, they've done studies, we're going to look at some data in a second, Christians don't know what the Great Commission is. And it's not just that, real quick, actually, before we talk about any of this, throughout this whole series, our goal is not to make anybody feel guilty. And based on the stats we're going to look at, there will be a lot of you who fall on one side or the other of this. Please know our goal today is to look forward, not look back with guilt. So if you feel like shamed or embarrassed, please don't. That's not our goal at all. We just have to address some of this stuff. Because the truth is, it's not just that Christians don't know like, what the Great Commission is, like they couldn't recite it. A huge percentage of Christians don't know that the Great Commission exists. Last year, Barna did a study where they asked church-going Christians, these are people who regularly attend church, and we already talked about what that stat actually means, but these are regular church attenders, and the question was, have you heard of the Great Commission? And 51% said no. They had not heard of the Great Commission. After that, 25% said, I've heard of the Great Commission, but I can't recall exactly what it means. And then there was 6% that said, I'm not sure. So that red wedge is 17% of the 1,004 people who were asked, 17% said, yes, I know what the Great Commission is, and I can tell you what it means. Again, the last thing I want is for us to feel guilty, but this is crystal clear evidence of the fact that that lack of mission and lack of purchase, uh, purpose has crept into the church and made itself at home. So we don't know as Christians what it is that we're supposed to be doing. 
So our goal today is super simple. We're gonna get everybody at least in this room into the red wedge, all right? So if you leave today, you want to be able to answer, yes, I know what the Great Commission is, and this is what it means. And then we're gonna look at some really practical applications for that. This is how the Great Commission starts. It's at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. So it's after Jesus has done his entire ministry, has died, has risen from the dead, and he sends his disciples ahead of him to Galilee, and they they arrive. It says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. This is one of three significant mountains in Matthew's Gospel. It's kind of exciting. It's, the structure is built around it. There's the Sermon on the Mount. The transfiguration of Jesus takes place on a mountain. And then here at the very end of the story, Jesus stands on a mountain with his 11 disciples. Many commentators believe that it's more than just the 11 disciples who are there. It's, it's other followers of Jesus as well. It seems to be indicated by the fact that some doubted, but it's not super clear. Either way, Jesus is on a mountain with his followers, and these are the last words of the Gospel of Matthew. The last thing Jesus says, and this Gospel ends. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. And with that, Matthew's gospel ends. That's the Great Commission. So now we're all at least in the green, I know what it is, but I'm not sure what it means section of the pie chart. This is like an incredibly, almost overwhelmingly comprehensive mission statement, right? Let's, let's look a little bit deeper at it. We're actually gonna start in the middle with the actual commission part where Jesus gives a direct command. It's 19 in the first half of 20. These are the four verbs. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And one of the tricky things about the Great Commission is that in English, the entire kind of command seems to be centered around that word go, right? You read it and the first thing you think is go, go, go. It's the first thing he says. But in Greek, it's crystal clear that that's actually not the main verb of the command. Um, For grammar nerds, the imperative in the sentence, there's only one. That's like the verb that is a command that's telling you to do something. The imperative is actually make disciples in the sentence. And go, baptize, and teach are all participles. They're verbs that describe how you do the main verb or what it looks like to do the main verb. Does that make sense? So it's not go and do these three things. It's actually make disciples and do it in these three ways, which is really incredibly different and I think important and significant. The middle of it is make disciples. We'll talk about that in a minute. Let's talk about the other three words there. He says go, and again, it's, it's a participle. It's not an imperative. So uh, it's, it's written this way because it's way better English, but uh, probably the best, most accurate way that you could actually render this from Greek would be in your going, make disciples, or as you go, make disciples. And I think that's really significant because you hear the Great Commission, and it almost sounds like stop what you're doing and go do something else. But the way it's written in Greek is actually, no, the the assumption is that if you're a Christian, going is a thing that you're doing. Going is already just baked into your identity as a Christian. So as you go, in the going that you're doing, make disciples. So there's a sense in which it means be making disciples in the life you live, but there's also a sense that it's not a cop-out at all. It's like, no, going is just a thing that you do if you're a Christian. 
He says, make disciples. He says, baptizing them in the name, singular, which I think is really cool, of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing is an incredibly dramatic thing to do in any social context, but especially in the first century world, in you know, this kind of combination of Greco-Roman culture and Jewish culture that the early church is gonna be acting in. It's a dramatic change of your life. It's declaring allegiance to Jesus as your king. It's identifying symbolically with the death and the resurrection. So it's, it's dramatic, it's make disciples and baptize them, call them to this radical switch in their allegiance. He says, teaching them a bunch of information, teaching them a list of facts and figures that they can memorize about the Bible. This is convicting for me, by the way. What does he say to teach them to do? To observe the commands of Jesus. He says, make disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them to obey me. Man, that's convicting. I mean, it's powerful that right there in the Great Commission is this command to teach. That's why from the beginning, for 2,000 years, teaching has been a massive part of what the church does. That's why we do it here. But the command specifically is teach them to obey. I had a professor who talked about how uh, Christians in the Western world, because we're so kind of like information-oriented and we're so education-oriented, we come to church services and seminars and conferences and we get a bunch of new information We don't do any of the things that we learn you should do. We just go home, and then we come back the next week and get more information. She liked to say that this has stuck with me forever. She said, American Christians are educated beyond their obedience level. And I was like, oh, yes, I am. It's powerful. He wants disciples who obey the commands of Jesus. The goal of teaching for the Christian is always transformation. It's not information. Oh, that was nice. Didn't plan that out. That would have killed in a Nigerian church. They love that kind of thing over there. It's transformation. He wants you to live differently as a result of what you've been taught. And that's a huge part of why we're kind of structuring this series this way. That's why we have the card, because it's like, no, don't just learn something. Let's change as a result of what we learn. Transformation, not just information. I'm going to do that every service today. It's not just information. Do you guys mind if I practice on you, your first service? (laughs) It's about obedience to the commands of Jesus. That's the goal. And so if you combine that whole like teaching to obey thing with make disciples being the main verb, you get a crazy different idea about what evangelism is supposed to be than what we typically think of it as. He doesn't say make converts. He says make disciples. It's one word. Disciple people discipleize people. Disciples are not the same thing as converts, right? It's not just like make a decision and say, now I'm a Christian. It's no, you become somebody who follows Jesus. That's what a disciple is. It's a person who sits at the feet of Jesus, who learns the ways of Jesus and follows him and tries to live like him, live the way that he taught us to. If you think about it, it's this incredibly powerful kind of automatically self-replicating commission. Because he says, get people who aren't disciples, Make disciples of them, baptizing them so that they are committed. They're on this team now and teach them to obey everything I've commanded, including this command, so they go out and make more disciples. See how powerful that is? Make disciples who go and make disciples who go and make disciples. If you're teaching them to obey Jesus, part of that necessarily is teaching them to do this. 
And that happened 2,000 years ago, and now there are millions of disciples of Jesus because people have been taking this commission seriously for 2,000 years. It's beautiful. People all around the world are out there making disciples and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. If we switch our orientation away from like a making converts mentality towards a making disciples mentality, man, we see this incredible thing start to happen. We're now, we're not just trying to get people to, to pray a specific prayer or to come to church with us. Those are important steps in the process. But the goal is people who are obeying Jesus, who are following Jesus, who are being like Jesus. It's a longer term investment for one thing. Because being a disciple is a lot longer than just like we got to get somebody to the point of making a decision, right? And we were getting, we're getting people to increasingly devote more and more of themselves to Jesus, putting more and more of their life under the lordship of Jesus. That's what a disciple is. So the command is actually kind of simple, but it's incredibly difficult, right? How many of you hear that and go like, okay, got it, but geez, all nations? And by the way, that's not like modern day political nation states the way we define them in the modern world. When, when you read the word nations in the Bible, it means people groups, ethno-linguistic people groups. There's somewhere in the ballpark of 16,000 of those in the world. So he says, who does he want his disciples to be? Just Jews in the first century? No. All nations. And that's the picture you get at the end of the Bible, is this people group made up of representatives of every tribe, tongue, and nation who have all pledged allegiance to Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. But man, it's so kind of all-encompassing that when you read it, it just feels impossible. And I think that if the Great Commission was just verses 19 and the first half of verse 20, you could reasonably assume this is impossible. Especially if you think about the small group of people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah at the time when Jesus gives this command, right? How are they gonna go and do this? The how is what's sandwiched around the command. So he said at the beginning of verse 19, go therefore. We know in church, we say this all the time here, if you see a therefore in the Bible, what are you supposed to ask? What is it there for? That's like the easiest thing to remember ever. If you're reading and you see a therefore, stop for a second and go, what is this about? Because the thing he's about to say is going to be based on something he just said. Here, the therefore, the basis of this commandment is the authority of Jesus. Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Something has shifted in the universe as a result of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He has demonstrated his right to rule heaven and earth. Everything is subject to him. There are massive parts of creation still in rebellion against him, of course. We see that around the world. Turn on the news, that's the part you see most of the time. But Jesus is making the claim here that he has all authority over heaven and earth, all of creation. So he says, you're not just going out like as little peons against a king. You're not like the, the little nobodies who are trying to like make a dent in something else. He goes, no, you are servants of the ultimate king of heaven and earth, going out with delegated authority from God himself to do this. You don't do it on your own authority. It wouldn't work. But Jesus has all authority, and he says, on the basis of my authority, go make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey me. Do it with delegated authority from the king of kings. And then at the end, and this is probably to me one of the most comforting sentences in the entire New Testament. He says, and, and look, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's so powerful in Greek, the I is like emphatic. It's like he's saying, 
I, yeah, even I, I myself am with you always to the end of the age. It's this promise of presence. And if we remember what he said at the beginning, this is the presence, the direct presence of the person with all the authority over heaven and earth. He goes, I'm with you always to the end. And it's in that kind of, that guarantee of authority and that promise of his presence that what sounds impossible becomes not just possible, but inevitable. That's the way the rest of the New Testament goes on to talk about what's going to happen. It's not a question of like, oh no, if Christians are too lazy and we don't go do the Great Commission, maybe Jesus will lose. It's inevitable. Jesus wins at the end of the story, if you believe the Bible. It's like the ultimate spoiler alert. If you read the rest of the New Testament, it's crystal clear what's going to happen. The question is just, are you going to get in on what he's doing now? The impossible, because of the presence of Jesus, is absolutely inevitable. But in kind of the interest of making this practical, I guarantee you that many of you are still kind of sitting there. Now, first of all, pretty cool. We're all in the red category now, right? At least for the next couple of days. And I encourage you, talk to your friends and family about this, because I know, trust me, I know, I'm not throwing stones at anybody. I know that you learn something and you go like, yes, got it, dialed. But if like in two weeks, somebody goes, what's the Great Commission? You're like, does the thing Sam talked about at church once count as an answer? <laughs> Rehearse this, read it, have it in your mind. This is, a, this is a part of the Bible that is worth memorizing. But you still, you, add, you read it and you go, okay, so is the practical application that all of us have to go become international missionaries? Like, do I have to go learn a new language, sell everything I own, and move to another place? And if I don't do that, am I not fulfilling the Great Commission properly? Like, is the only thing that Christians are supposed to do going to foreign nations and preaching the gospel there? Um, and the answer, fortunately, from the New Testament is an emphatic no. That's surprising to hear from the mission pastor, right? Not every single Christian is expected to go and become a, uh, an international missionary. And I'll, I'll show you an example of why. There's a lot of examples like this in the New Testament. But look at what Paul says at the end of Romans 15. This is, um, Paul is closing out his letter to the Romans. And this is sort of in his final greetings. He's saying like, hey, these are the preparations that you guys should make. Say hi to this guy, say hi to this guy. And he says this, and you can totally miss it for a number of reasons. He says, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Now, we don't know where Illyricum is, most of us. So you're reading it and you just kind of don't key into it. You're like, yeah, he's closing the book. Let's go. He just said, from Jerusalem all the way up to Albania-ish, right by Italy. So this is from Jerusalem through Syria, through Turkey, along the coast of Greece, all the way up to Albania. It looks like this. From the Middle East to Western Europe, he goes, in all of that area, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a crazy thing to say. And just in case you think we're misunderstanding him, a few verses later, he says this. He goes, now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, church in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I have no more room to work in any of those countries. Do you think every single person in all of those countries was a Christian when Paul wrote that? Like, did he convert 100% of the populations of all of those countries? It's not a hard question. <laughs> no, 
He didn't. And we know that because everywhere Paul goes, he's planting churches, he's leaving leaders, he's writing them letters saying, continue to do the work of the gospel. Spread the gospel, take care of the poor, take care of the sick. Continue doing the work of ministry in these regions. The very same regions that he says, there's nothing more for me to do here. Here's an example. He tells the church in Rome, I need your help as I go to Spain. I need your material help. I need your spiritual help. I need you to support me as I continue doing the job that God has called me to do. In other words, at the most simple level, there's more than one job to do as Christians. Part of the job of the Church of Rome is support this pioneer missionary in the unique and specific work that God has called him to. And if you read the letters that Paul writes in these regions, there are clearly a number of things people need to do. They need to take care of the poor. They need to organize things to take care of widows. They need to preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it in their communities. But for Paul, his specific calling is, listen, I've done the pioneer mission work here. I've got another place to go. But here's the thing, and this is like a deep and consistent frustration for me as a mission pastor. When we hear things like this, we just like breathe way too big of a sigh of relief right away, right? Oh, good. He's not going to tell me that I have to be a missionary. In a room this size, some of us are going to be missionaries. And I mean like missionaries in the technical sense, like you're going to sell everything you own and go to a different country. I get so frustrated, and and be patient with me because there's tons of people in the room who've probably said this to a number of people, but I hear things like, oh, I'm not called to be a missionary all the time, as if we knew what God might call us to do tomorrow. You might not be ready to be a missionary right now. That might not be what God has you doing right now. I know people who became full-time missionaries in their mid-50s who never thought that's what they were gonna do. And I feel like, man, we just, we, we act like we know better than God about what God wants us to do, and we shut down things way in advance. And so what I wanna say is, there is more than one job, but everyone is called to missions. And just because you don't feel at this point in your life like you have a missionary calling to go to a different context and become a missionary doesn't mean that you're not called to support the work of international missions, first of all, and doesn't mean that God might not change that. How many of you guys have been out of the United States on a missions trip and you thought you never would? That's a pretty big number of people already. Some of you guys might raise your hand at that question six months from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. So I just want to encourage you, don't shut it off and don't think that just because you're, don't, let me put it this way, do not outsource all of the work of advancing the gospel and responding to the Great Commission to the kind of like professional superhero Christians. Every single one of us is called to respond to the Great Commission. It's just not always the same response. That's why Isaac has been using this example of the circles. You guys remember this from the last couple of weeks? There is this massive circle that you can look at. You can look at the situation as, okay, all nations are going to have disciples for Jesus, and we don't have all of them reached yet. So one way to look at that is to go, well, I can't be a missionary right now. I've got three little kids. I'm barely making ends meet. I have physical ailments that make it impossible for me to do that work. So I guess I can't do anything. That is just categorically the wrong response. And it's a natural response, so again, don't feel bad. But the response that I would encourage all of us to take is what we've been talking about this whole series. Think about what is a smaller circle into the world of responding to the Great Commission 
that you might be able to step into? What's something that you can do? Don't do nothing because you can't do everything. Do something. All of us are called to this mission. And a lot of the time when we do that, God expands what he has us doing. You're faithful with something small, and he gives you something bigger, and he gives you something bigger. We don't know, for all of us, how big that circle gets. I know people, uh, here, here's a, a beautiful example of this. My friends Jim and Julie Hansen used to go to this church. They live in a different state now. They, their parents are here, actually. They, uh, they went on, well, Julie, she went on a uh, mission trip to visit some friends who worked in Tanzania full-time. Short-term mission trip. Then she went for a summer. Then she became their accountant, but she lived here in the United States. And eventually, to make a very long story short, they retired, and instead of moving to Costa Rica like they planned to, they sold everything they owned and moved to Africa and became full-time missionaries. Now, I'm not saying that that's the end goal for everybody in the room, but they did not go from zero, from nothing, to moving to Africa, right? They stepped into a small circle and said, I'm gonna be faithful with this thing that I can do to advance the gospel, to respond to the Great Commission. So I want you guys to ask today, ask yourself, what is a way that I can respond to the Great Commission that I can start like right now? I wanna give you a few suggestions. The first one is the most obvious, and this is a conviction for me because I'm bad at this, despite my job. We need to be praying for the work of the gospel, for the advancement of the kingdom of God in the world. We need to be praying for the workers who are in these incredibly difficult situations. We need to be on our knees participating. That's the way Paul talks about when he asks for prayer for his missions work in some of the books of the Bible in Colossians, it's, you're becoming a participant in my work by praying for me. So be aware of missionaries that our church has. Be aware of missionaries that you might know in your own circle of friends and family and be in prayer for them. I would also suggest that you take a look at some of the kind of needs and issues and problems in the world that Christians are addressing and ask, how can I get involved? There are huge numbers of these that we do here at this church. There's a crisis pregnancy center in town that we support and that many of you guys volunteer at. There's homeless ministries that we do that many of you know about and are involved in. We do something called Foster the Bay, where we raise up and support foster families. You might not, here's a, it's a perfect example of a small circle. Some of you guys are ready to step into the massive circle of foster parenting. Some of you guys can bring those people a meal once a month. That is not nothing. It's incredibly significant, and if you talk to the foster families in this church who are receiving that kind of help, it's huge. Step into it. Become a support friend with Foster the Bay. That's a perfect example of something that you can do. You can get involved in things like ma the massive need for global uh, water and food shortages and how we're helping with things like that. You can get involved in the issues of human trafficking and supporting nonprofit organizations. And for all of these things, just step in a little bit. I talked to a guy who ran an organization called uh, Project AK-47. It was a human trafficking organization that saved children in Cambodia from human trafficking. And he said that he would go to conferences and people would come to the table broken from his presentation and be like, I want to move to Cambodia. Can you help me get to Cambodia? I want to help you. And he, would, and he, would, he called them John Wayne Christians. I've heard that, that term other places too. That you want to go from zero to like riding in on a white horse and saving the people. God might have that for you. I don't want to discourage you from that. But you should do something. Don't think, well, I can't move to Cambodia, so I can't help. No. You can become a monthly supporter of an organization like that. That's a massive step in. You have, you have no idea how badly these people need that kind of support. So find these causes, these issues that the gospel is addressing, that Christians are doing something about, and take a step into involvement. Don't do nothing because you can't do everything. 
And last, and I honestly think most importantly, especially for the area that we live in, Tim Keller, we, we, uh, he was in the Bay Area, and some of the pastors went and saw him a few weeks ago. And he talked about how in the Bay Area, this is such an incredibly unchurched place. We talked about it last week, but right now on Sunday morning, 2% of the Bay Area is in church. So the bottom line is people who aren't Christians are not going to just come to us, right? And Tim Keller said the only way the gospel advances in this area is if every committed Christian is committed to personal evangelism. So the small circle that every single one of us need to do is become aware of the unsaved or hurting people in your life right now. Some of you are lamenting the fact that you can't go to Africa, but you've got family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors who need the gospel just as badly. And we don't even know who they are. We don't know their names. So the first step into this, in my opinion, is become aware of these people. Start praying for them. Start thinking about opportunities you might have to talk to them and spend time with them. Um, I mean, you guys, it's make disciples of all nations. If you work in the Bay Area, the nations are here. Have you guys ever thought about that? Many of you work in the same office as somebody who might be from a closed country where missionaries aren't allowed to go. And you can take, those, you can take that guy to lunch once a month. You know what I mean? Some of you are in clubs or groups that are filled with people who don't know Jesus who are from all around the world. And so we think, man, I'll never move away to the Middle East to become a missionary in a closed country, but there might be people from that closed country sitting 10 feet away from you for eight hours a day, every day of the week. Become aware of these people in your life who you can have an impact on, who you can spread the gospel to. We're so committed at this point right now to, to trying to make this practical and to give you guys like real steps that you can take so that it's not just information, it's what? Yeah. That's the best thing that happened in the sermon today. <laughs> so all of you in your bulletin or your handout, you have a card like this. The top half is the give section and that's about everything we talked about last week, about serving inside the walls of the church. This bottom half is the go half and it's about how you can step into a smaller circle of serving outside the walls of the church. And I would encourage every single one of you to respond to this. Because it doesn't mean you have to check like a box in every category. But there's things as general as, look, I want to support global missions. I want to know how to do that. At the bottom, there's just a commitment that you can make to being committed to this stuff. And then there's a fill-in that's blank where you can say, hey, maybe you're already doing something. Guys, I want to know about that. So if you're like, man, I've already got this awesome thing I'm involved in that I feel great about, but I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to do even more of it. Write that in at the bottom. We want to know. But I want to encourage you guys, make this practical. Let's actually do something. Let's respond to the Great Commission. I mean, how incredible is, would that be if just today there were some of us who heard the Great Commission, understood it for the first time, and did something about it? That would, that would be like the coolest thing that I've ever done in my life. So for my sake, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do it for me. The bottom line, and this is probably the most significant thing about the Great Commission, is that at the end, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with authority over heaven and earth says, I will be with you. We talked about how hero stories, stories of great mission, are always stories of somebody who's willing to deny himself, to sacrifice something for something greater. There is no better example of that under heaven than Jesus Christ. Jesus comes, denies himself, humbles himself, 
goes to the point of death on a cross and torture and misery to accomplish the ultimate cosmic goal. It is the ultimate mission. Every mission story that you've ever heard is an echo of that great true one. And so know that nothing that Jesus is asking you to do in the Great Commission is something that he hasn't already modeled for you to the most extreme level possible. And so as we make these commitments to step into the mission and do something meaningful and to start engaging with this stuff, know that the King of Kings goes with you and that he has already been there. He is ahead of you and he knows exactly what you're doing and he knows what it's like. And so you don't go into battle alone. You go in knowing, Jesus, you are with me. I can do this because of your authority, not anything special about me. So let's do that. Let's respond today. I want to encourage you guys again, before the service is over, respond to that card in some way. Um, and right now, we're going to do uh, communion and some more worship in a little bit, but it's so appropriate and so exciting for me uh, to get to invite up a guest that we have with us today. We're talking about mission, and we just happen to have um, my brother and my friend, um, Pastor Omar from Cuba here. And I just want to tell you guys, South Valley, the way we do international missions is different than a lot of churches. We have a small number of very deep partnerships. So we have partnerships in five countries, and those partnerships, we know these people. They are our friends. They are our family, and we invest a lot in terms of time, money, and energy into these places. And so whenever they're here, I just want you guys, look at this face so that you can pray for this man and his ministry, and know that Every single day while we're doing everything we do here to advance the gospel, we have partners and friends in other parts of the world who are doing the exact same thing. And so, um, yeah, let's give an amazingly warm welcome to my brother and my friend, Pastor Omar from Cuba. Buenos dias. Good morning. Qué bendición poder estar otra vez con ustedes. What a blessing it is to be with you again. Hace dos años pude venir a, a dar gracias a este lugar. So two years ago I was able to come and thank you. Siguiendo lo que dice la Biblia, que debemos, debemos dar gracias en todo porque esta es la voluntad de Dios para con nosotros en Cristo Jesús. Doing what the Bible tells us to do, which is to be grateful because this is what God uh, God wills us to do, wants us to do. Nosotros estamos sirviendo al Señor en el centro de la isla de Cuba. We are serving God in the center of Cuba. En la parte norte, una zona montañosa. In the northern part, in a, in a mountainous part. Y allí Dios está extendiendo su reino. And there God is extending his kingdom. Nosotros eh, encontramos que el Señor está haciendo grandes cosas en medio nuestro. We find that God is doing great things in our midst. Eh, personas son alcanzadas con el Evangelio de Jesús. Are being by the Los niños oyen la palabra del Señor. Children listen to the word of God. Y muchas personas que están sin esperanza encuentran en Cristo la razón de sus vidas. And many who are hope find in their lives by God. Nosotros los tenemos a ustedes bien presentes. And we think of you often. Pues muchas de las cosas que nosotros las hacemos allí las podemos lograr por las ofrendas de amor que ustedes envían hasta allá. Because many of the things that we are able to do there, we can do because of your offerings. Así que nosotros formamos parte de un mismo equipo. So we're in one team. We are one team. Trabajamos para el mismo Señor. We work for the same Lord. Y encontramos que Dios a través de nosotros está extendiendo su reino. 
Nosotros queremos darles muchas gracias a Dios y darle gracias a ustedes a nombre de nuestra iglesia. Y de todas aquellas personas que reciben los beneficios de lo que ustedes envían a Cuba. And all the people who receive a benefit from what you sent to Cuba. Mi presencia en este lugar es realmente un milagro. Being here today is really a miracle. Porque poder venir de Cuba hasta acá para nosotros es bien difícil. Because having traveling from Cuba to here is pretty difficult. Pero el hecho de que lo podamos hacer muestra la grandeza del Dios que servimos. But just the fact that we can do it shows us the greatness of God, how great God is. Eh, el pastor hablaba de que nosotros estamos en una gran misión. Y debemos estar bien animados. Porque ciertamente el éxito de esta misión lo asegura el Señor. Así que los animo a todos involucrarse en lo que Dios está haciendo. So I want to encourage you to take part in what God is doing. Sabiendo que Dios está moviendo la historia al establecer su reino. Knowing that God is moving history to establish his kingdom. A nombre de la iglesia y de todos, muchas gracias. So uh, from our church and everyone there, thank you very much. Que Dios les bendiga. God bless you.